Hi, and welcome to the Pointless Artist podcast. I'm Bianca Vinter, the creator of the Pointless Artist. This is an art talk I had with Joshua Good on Tuesday, the 15th of February, 2022. Joshua is an American artist based in Fort Worth, Texas. He's teaching fine arts at the Tarrant County College in Fort Worth, where he's also managing the Carillon, the art gallery of the college, and runs the artist residency program. Apart from that, Joshua is a dedicated husband and a dad of two kids. He has often been referred to as Indiana Jones of art. Find out why and much more about Joshua Good and his work in this podcast episode. You can find Joshua on joshuagood.com and on Instagram, Joshua underscore Good. You can listen now to my talk with Joshua. Hi, Joshua, and welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Yes, thank you so much for accepting my invitation. I'm super happy you've accepted it. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Um, what, seven hours difference, so you're enjoying an evening drink, maybe, a cocktail, and I'm, I'm still in the morning, still have some coffee. Yeah, right. Well, I'm not enjoying a, a cocktail drink yet. I'll enjoy that after our talk. <laughs> <laughs> So, Joshua, um, could you tell us, please, a few words about who you are? Well, uh, as an artist, I've been traveling the world, posing as an archaeologist, discovering the ruins of an imaginary ancient civilization that I claim predates all others and originated in Texas. So it's a little bizarre, uh, a little crazy, but I am actually studying real history and trying to connect with the local communities at the same time. But sometimes it's hard to explain that to people when they ask, what do you do as an artist? Like, oh, well, um, I act like I'm an archaeologist and I discover mythical creatures. That's amazing. <laughs> so acting or posing like an archaeologist while being actually an artist. Yes, you're crazy, but that's part of the whole business here. <laughs> How did you become an artist? I mean, when and why did you decide to become an artist? And what was your motivation back then? And what motivates you right now? Um, I'm looking here in particular at those seeds that were planted in you in your childhood and germinated later in your work as an artist. I remember I found an old video of yours on YouTube where you were addressing enactments of Native American ceremonies that you've experienced that had an impact, kind of an influence on your later work? Yes, well, I, I guess from the comedy and the absurdity of my work, I have to take it back down for a minute and talk about something more serious. So growing up, mm -hmm. my sister, who is two and a half years younger than me, she has a very rare degenerative brain condition. And so during her life, during her early years, she dramatically declined and ended up being at about a one-month-old or two-month-old level mentally. And we were yeah. mm. told she would die at any moment and to prepare for this, to buy a funeral dress and clothing and go ahead and get her grave ready, she would die. Oh, dear. And that was, you know, a, a traumatic experience to go through that. And Very much so, yeah. I always wanted to find ways to commemorate her. And it started with like tomb building and looking at ways that people commemorate others. And one of the things that came with that that my parents found comfort in 
was Native American ceremonies, Native American religion, and started mm-hmm. to practice Lakota Sioux religion. And so we would travel and work with these medicine men, and some of the ceremonies that I got to participate in, uh, Vision Quest, uh, the Sundance, and like these really intense rituals left a mark on me that to see the power of the shaman and the power of an object, like how do you transform something Mm -hmm. uh, that is seemingly meaningless into something that has this great power behind it. And my sister is still alive, which is... (laughs) remarkable now as she's getting close to 40 wow so that's that's been like the most important thing is like trying to find a way to honor her early on and and build these tunes with her personal objects and objects from her childhood and i've always felt that satire is the best way to handle serious conversations and especially topics like death uh that that's been the way to do it so it's it's kind of a downer, but that's that's the reason behind my work and my choice to be an artist. I see. So if I understood you correctly, your relationship with your sister and actually this very traumatic experience that you went through and you've just described, it's like sort of a red thread. Yes. Throughout your career as an artist and influencing, kind of inspiring Yes. Everything you did, and then humor, you said this form of sarcastic approach to very serious like life and death issues. I see that as, a, if you ask me, a very healthy approach. Thank you. <laughs> kind of a way to escape becoming crazy, literally like mad. Yeah? Yes. Or falling into a deep depression or losing the sense and purpose of life. Have I understood you correctly? Yes, exactly. And and there are points in my work where it did get too serious mm-hmm. and it was too hard on me emotionally to make the work that was too close, too serious related to her and the situation. So I have to step back. Right. I think that you probably referred to an early work I found on YouTube old video of yours that had really an impact on me that was telling the story of your sister of her condition and of yourself so kind of also your own narrative your own feelings and experience with that is that correct that's a very very old work yes yes that is a older work and it was basically like her tomb i built her tomb which was like a recreation of her bedroom when we were growing up can we see that somewhere? Because I've recently tried to see it again and I couldn't find it anymore. Oh, I, I can send you. I used to have the images on my website, but I can send you those images. Well, I'm asking also for my oh, listeners. Yes. Um, if there is any kind of way they could access, they could see that video, access that piece of work that you've done. When was that? Which year was that? Well, that was the first one. There was one in 2007 and one in 2010 that were both tombs. Mm. Have you got a link on your website? At the moment, I don't have anything yet, but I, I should put that back. The struggle as an artist to like update and keep things fresh, right. uh, I think it does prohibit us sometimes from leaving a longer track record and portfolio to show our development. 
Yeah, and as an art historian, I'm not speaking now as a curator of exhibitions or as an artist, but I speak now as an art historian. For me, it's extremely interesting to kind of look at your parcours and to see where you started and where you stand right now. It's kind of doing a bit of personal archaeology, if I may call it so. To me, this is a very, very important piece of information because it helps me immensely understand how you've developed as an artist, how you've become the artist that you are right now, and to understand also the most important topics of your work, your discourse, and what concerns and preoccupates you, and what needs to be expressed and be taken out there. No, you're right. I, I need to add that back in. I'm not trying to convince you to do that, but I'm just saying that it's super interesting and that, that it touched me profoundly. Well, well thank you. Joshua, you have talked about your, I wouldn't like to call it role, but let's say role as an artist or part of you as an artist, but you are not just an artist. You are also a professor. You chair the fine arts department of the Tarrant College in Fort Worth in Texas, where you live. And you are also managing the art gallery of the college. And at the same time, you run the artist residence program. I'm tired just listening to it. <laughs> I should have just said you are three in one, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but then I would have still had to specify, to mention what that actually means. <laughs> so you're, you must be a very, very busy man. Plus, you're a dad and a husband, right? So. Yes. <laughs> I'm in full admiration. How do you manage all that? I, I am very busy and my studio is at home. So my children are in the studio with me and they can help me with a lot of my projects. So I try to design things that they can help with the fake excavations. Yeah. My daughter even traveled to London with me on one of the shows and helped. And we're working on another show uh, this summer in Milan and both the whole family were going and they will help me with the project. Fantastic. We will come back to that later on because I'm super curious to find out what you are currently preparing, yes. working on. Let's talk a little bit about seeing because this is, for me personally, a very, very interesting topic. And for artists in general, seeing is a way of seeing, as John Berger said. And we all see differently, and that's a fact. The question is how, right? So I'm, I'm very interested in this topic. I published a few blog posts about it on the Pointless Artist blog. And there are many artists of different experience levels out there in all corners of the world who are asking themselves this question right now. How do I see and how do other fellow artists see and what means to see like an artist. Therefore, I'm going to ask you this major question. <laughs> How do you, Joshua Good, see as an artist? In other words, what seems important to you? What draws your attention? And what do you notice when you see things? Well, I think the most important thing for me is to see sincerity, to see that an artist really cares about what they're doing. That's the most important thing, and it's so powerful in, in artwork when you see that an artist truly cares about what they're doing and what they're making, and it carries on. And that's important to me, that everything I do, I have a connection with, I personally respond to, and I think a viewer can see that. And I feel like I can see that when I look at a piece of artwork that the artist truly cared about making, feels that personal connection with, and has a story to tell. They have something that's important to them that they would like mm -hmm. to share with others. I also care a lot about materials. I think you can tell when an artist cares about their material, 
the quality of it, a sense of touch where there's a tactile response mm -hmm. to it and they explore it. There's an inventiveness in seeing what they can do instead of just going through a process to get an end result. So that's, that's what I like to see from artists and typically what I respond to are they're just artists who are passionate about what they do, and that could be expressed in so many different ways. I don't even think I have a favorite medium anymore. Uh, I used to not like video, but then I started to see more video artists who you know, truly cared about their craft and had a clear story that was important to them that they're expressing, even if it was you know, absurd or nonsensical, you know, not a direct narrative, mm -hmm. but you just, just feel that connection to the artist. Right. It's very interesting. You've mentioned some very important keywords here. You talked about sincerity, you talked about care, and you've also addressed this um, important aspect of process as opposed to, to the end result, right. to the outcome. So I would like to ask you a little bit more into this. Like when you said the way you see is a form of um, an expression of sincerity and a form of care. And maybe you could help me understand this better. What do you mean by form of care? By caring? Yeah. Can you maybe just give me an example, give us an example of one of your works and the way you've kind of expressed sincerity and care while creating it? One of the cornerstones of my work is that typically it involves an object or artifact from my childhood. So there's something to build around and respond to. So I already care about this kind of insignificant thing so much. I mean, maybe it's a broken toy. Maybe it is a sports card. You know, maybe it's a, a shovel and finding a way to make a new work based upon that. And it stems from that, how to connect that to an art historical canon and add the importance of that object into it. How do I make that important to others? How do I share that? That it's something I care about so much that is, by all intents and purposes, meaningless. Uh, if you saw it on the side of the road, it would, it would go away. There's the movie Blow Up. Uh, there's a great scene where... Uh, the protagonist goes into this club, and I think it's the birds playing. It's like Eric Clapton jamming out on the guitar, and everybody's going wild, and they're cheering, and he breaks a guitar, and they fight, and throws it into the crowd, and they fight over like these broken pieces of a guitar, and the protagonist in this movie, he, he kind of grabs it from, from the crowd, and he runs outside. They're all chasing him, and then he gets outside. He's in the street, it's an empty street, and he pauses. He looks down at this broken guitar neck. Like, what? why am I holding this? What is this? Like, I'm, I'm holding a piece of trash. And just mm. tosses it to the ground and walks away. And, you know, I think it's about how do you create that context? And how do you make make it stay that powerful? Like, this, this piece of trash that momentarily can seem really powerful and you have a personal connection to, and how do you convey that to others so you um spoke here about giving like ordinary objects a meaning engaging with these ordinary objects or objects that seem ordinary to the world to everybody else but not you engaging into a very personal and deep conversation with and and kind of 
trying at the same time to make others see, perceive, understand this object differently while looking at this object. Have I captured this message correctly? Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. Speaking of meaning, giving objects a particular, a special meaning, it just made me think of what you have just said in the beginning of our conversation when you when you spoke about those Native American ceremonies and about those shamans who were dealing with totems, with this kind of very holy objects and conveying a very special meaning to them. Do you think that this parallel, the way I interpret this, makes sense to you? Yes, I, I definitely think there is that I mean, my ritual aspect of it is, you know, digging in the ground, discovering mm -hmm. these items and placing them in a whole new narrative from the ground up, like from discovery to giving it a description, giving it a meaning, and then displaying it like you would in an actual history museum. Right. So, so it gives the whole context, it just it becomes this comforting umbrella around it, just like when you go into a museum or... You know, personally, when you think about digging up a treasure, anything you dig up mm -hmm. in the ground, mm -hmm. it, it has this kind of mystical importance in so many right. possibilities and where did it come from, what's the history, and then to provide it that and to to give it some some level of importance, and that's the thing. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. And I love to hear those word possibilities because this is indeed the essence of art. Art does open possibilities and doesn't have a roadmap and doesn't come up with like clear cut solutions and answers. And um, I, I was just thinking while you were explaining it um, further, I was just thinking that you make art and archaeology super flu. It's like archaeology flows into art and art flows into archaeology in everything you do as an artist. And I find this super fascinating because this is not the way that we've been taught to look at archaeology and art. Like these are two kind of different pieces of, we would say in German, of shoes. So <laughs> it's extraordinary what you, what you make out. And that's art, actually. Right. <laughs> Above anything else, isn't it? <laughs> it? It definitely is. And it's something that so many people have taken advantage of archaeology over the years for personal or political gain by creating fake artifacts. And one of my favorites is... Uh, the German Heinrich Schliemann. Yes. Yeah, it's fantastic that I've, I've read his bio. I love him. He's so interesting character that he, amateur archaeologist, he goes to Troy. He finds some ruins. It's like, yeah, this is, this is Troy. This is where the Trojan War was. Mystery solved. And everybody still believes it. Like, that's, there's no way that is really the place. But he made a case. You're right. As a former Egyptologist, because I'm not in the field anymore, but I actually happened to even write a PhD on a topic related to Egyptology and Catology. So I perfectly understand what you say, and I know exactly what you mm. refer to. And that, that's absolutely crazy. And this is actually another topic we could address in the future, because I find it super fascinating. Also from a psychological point of view, yeah? People believe or are ready to believe anything just because somebody says that in a way and this is really really funny uh, Schliemann himself managed to make 
this distinction between archaeology and art superflu because, you know, art is because somebody says it or it can be art because somebody says it. <laughs> so Schliemann said that that was true and that was it and people believed it. Yes, and still do. It's so <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about your Imaginarium and your own mythological universe. Well, within the past 16 years, you've created hybrids, imaginary forums and creatures that engage historical facts and loads of fiction into a perpetual conversation. You've also created your own faux research institute, which is almost literally, I would say, surreal, bizarre, as you said, mind-blowing. Let me ask you again, what's your discourse and intention? And has anybody, speaking of people believing what others say, <laughs> has anybody ever believed you? <laughs> well, I think my real goal is to to help draw attention to all the misinformation that is out there so that mm -hmm. people would question Schliemann and that I want my discoveries to be absurd enough that they're not believable, that you look at it and maybe at first, you know, it has the appearance of something that's real, uh, it's packaged in the right way, but then you look a second time and you realize it's a joke and you feel that you are part of the joke. You don't feel that you're getting made fun of. You feel like, oh, yes, I get what he's referencing. So I want it to be absurd so people don't believe it. That is, I absolutely don't want people to leave anything I do believing that I don't want to contribute to the problem. I want to draw attention to it and encourage more critical thinking. But people have believed some of my things. As an example, I did a project in Kortrijk, Belgium. Yes. It's not far from, from me, actually. No, I live yes. in Aachen, yes? Yes. And Kortrijk is actually not far from here. I don't know, an hour or something, an hour and a half? Yes, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I claim that I discovered uh, a great ancient smiley-faced pyramid there, that they were the ruins of this pyramid. And I had these, you know, fantastical drawings of smiley-faced pyramids just on paper, and I made it kind of look old. And uh, artifacts that are like my old toys, and it's completely absurd. And so we did this fake dig, the community came and joined us, the children loved it, and it was a three-day art festival. 90% of the people who came up immediately got the joke, had fun, laughed, and then played around and found stuff. There was one crazy old man who was like, I am a local historian and I have never heard anything about this. I was like, wow, you have not heard about this, that is... That is surprising. It's like, tell me more about these pyramids you found. Like, well, so what I am claiming is that ancient Texans rode on woolly mammoths across an ice bridge that used to connect Texas to Europe. Oh, and wow. they <laughs> built these giant smiley face pyramids that used to be here before anything else was here. And wow. He, he looks and he goes, wow, I have not heard about that before. And I'm like, wow, you haven't heard about the ancient Texans riding woolly mammoths across an ice bridge. And then he, he picks up the my map that, you know, is handmade. No you know, way. it's acrylic paint. And he looks and he goes, yeah. you know, I haven't seen paper like this that would be that old. Like, yeah, I'm claiming that that is <sighs> no 10,000 years old. Wow, I didn't know they made paper like this back then. I'm just looking at the guy. I'm like, please understand. It's a joke. 
we have some of this on video. There's a mockumentary, and you see the guy, and and he finally get when when he looks at me again, and I'm like, yeah, I, I, this is what I'm claiming, and he he finally like everybody else. I mean, there's 20 other people around just looking at him like, are you serious? And finally, he looks yeah. and goes, oh, you're joking with me. I'm like, yes. <laughs> And then he starts laughing and enjoying it. But it, it took him a very long time. <laughs> wow. Was he the only one? No, there's there's, there's another. More. There's more. <laughs> uh, in Texas, right before the pandemic, I found a two-headed mummified mastodon uh, that was the precursor to what I recently found in Russia. And there were a few right. people who believed yeah. that at first. Uh, that I had to encourage to think about a little bit more. And now with social media, wow. it has been very interesting and opened up a new facet to my work. So during the pandemic, I couldn't travel, I couldn't do these things. So I just staged everything through photographs. Right. And would just, you know, post a photo. Some of them, it's just digging in the garden in front of my house. And, you know, it's just dirt and an artifact. And there you go. And people will get into all of these arguments, like in my Instagram comments, like under the post, there's an argument going on right now between people who get the joke and people who don't. And they will criticize Gosh. and they will say, why are you not using gloves when you pick up this artifact? My. Yeah, Why have we not heard about this before? And then, of course, you have the others that are like, have you not looked and seen that this says artist on top? Do you not understand this is a joke? And then they will argue amongst each other. It is, it's fascinating and alarming. Yes, exactly. This is what I was going to say, like all joke and uh, satirical approach left aside. It is definitely alarming. And this exposes, this on the one hand shows the importance of your work and of your contribution to the world. And on the other hand, it exposes the um, vulnerability of these brains. Yes. It's not for nothing that I've asked you uh, if anybody believed you, because I think that exactly that percent of people who believe are first and foremost the target here, because they can actually, through this experience, enter the revelation of the truth that they, they eventually reach to in the end, have an enormous amount of things to learn. Yes. So speaking of transformation, which is actually central to, to the Pointless Artist blog, um, it's a topic that I'm very much concerned with because art is, if you ask me, first and foremost, transformation. Yes. This group of people who believe this is the most interesting group here among all your audiences. And I personally see everything you do like most relevant to them because their learning curve, once they've experienced your work and they go through this process of believing and then realizing the fake that they believed in, their learning curve is impressive. Yes, it's it's also entertaining when you get. I mean, I I'll post a picture of you no, know, it's a part Bart Simpson, part dinosaur, and it's a dinosaur right. with Bart Simpson's head. Mm -hmm. Clearly not a real artifact. I mean, can it be more obvious than that? <laughs> you you would think that it couldn't be more obvious, but I will get, I will get people believe it, but then I get people that really think I'm serious and trying to claim it's an artifact instead of it being a joke, and so they will 
they'll be like, I am an archaeologist, and I can tell you that is not a real artifact. And I'll be like, yes. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. You want a pat on the back? Like, <laughs> I, I had one person, I have three degrees in archaeology, and I can tell by the aging of that bronze that that is not a real artifact. Like, that's the only, only thing that, that shows it's not real? Right. Yeah. That's, that's, if you ask me, the other extreme. So you have, on the one extreme, you have those who believe yeah, naively and kind of, you know, wholeheartedly. And on the other side, you have the opponents passionately feeling like, oh my God, this is an imposter, yeah. a huge imposter that we have to expose and criticize because how dares he, right? Well, it's very true. And, and fortunately, most archaeologists enjoy my work and I collaborate with and get along with because they realize what I'm doing and I'm very respectful of, of their mm -hmm. interest. Right. You've even participated in archaeological excavations in Germany. Yes. And that's really, mm -hmm. that experience really got me to start doing the fake excavations to realize, you know, how powerful and how, you know, the mystery behind digging things up and the hope of making an amazing discovery, uh, how powerful that is. Fascinating. I love this approach to misinterpretation, manipulation, and this message of critical thinking, in like challenging, you know, uh, it's very interesting um, how many synergies there are between you and the artist I had a, an art talk with before, Luciana Whittle. You are very, very different. And at the same time, you basically speak of the same thing, critical thinking, challenging the big stories, challenging narratives, exposing the big stories that own us and kind of trying to bring your contribution to this world and to transforming the way people perceive, see and understand things and their relationship with this big narrative, big stories that own them. Great. Well, I need to listen to that podcast. I need to look at her work. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, can I ask you, speaking of transformation, can I ask you to explain us in a few words what transformation means to you? For me, it's how do I transform something of personal significance into something of universal significance using uh, a common language of power. So if it's gold, if it is ivory, uh, adding that, like the recognized images from mythology and ancient sculpture and painting, like how to borrow, not even borrow, but to steal what has been done to claim power mm -hmm. before, just as every king has done throughout history is borrow the iconography, steal the iconography of those who came before them to claim power, even in religion, especially in religion. Oh, yes. And you are questioning all that in your very specific very particular very personal way and uh yeah i find this uh, this contribution absolutely vital especially also um in the context of these past two years and of all the things that we've been exposed to and we've been told and we've been experiencing since uh since the outbreak of the pandemic it's been some wild, crazy times. I don't know how bizarre it's been in Germany compared to the the lunacy in the United States. I mean, you have people drinking their own pee and drinking bleach and because they get that misinformation. 
Now, I haven't heard of this in Germany because we are supposed to be more kind of sachlich and more, you know, in that kind of sense of pragmatic and uh, terre a terre. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I don't think that we went so far here. <laughs> You're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> but there are enough stories of anxiety. There are enough stories of um, alienation that um, I have personally uh, experienced or heard of. Yes, once more, in view of all these things, um, I see your work as like extremely important and vital. Joshua, um, can you uh, tell us a little bit about your creative process? Which steps do you take from when inception to completion? Uh, does it start with an object? Does it start with a few sketches? Um, how do you work? <laughs> Well, I, I think really at the core it becomes two things that have to come together, and that is a historical reference, whether that mm -hmm. be uh, existing artwork or existing myth, and an artifact, an actual thing from my childhood. So those two things together are, are always the driving force. And what I love to do is also react to the different locations that I travel to Uh, in St. Petersburg, one of my first projects there, I enjoyed uh, Peter the Great created the Kunstkamera Museum. And it is a museum that has all of these, they're babies in jars that have different deformities. So they're mutated and they have, you know, one eye, two heads, four legs, like every possible mutation you could think of. He put them in jars and he put them in a museum so people could see that it's not witchcraft, that these things occur naturally. They're weird, they're rare, but it was a, it was a education campaign that he did. Yeah, demystifying sort of all sorts of popular beliefs and yeah, hallucinations about this kind of natural things. Yeah, right. I, I thought it was uh, really forward thinking at the time. Absolutely. And so my idea with that was to create. Well, you have two-headed lizards; they occur. What about a two-headed T-Rex? Why not? Why not? <laughs> that could have happened as a mutation. <laughs> So I created a two-headed T-Rex skull that I discovered in St. Petersburg. And then I took it a step further and said, if someone came upon this, maybe that influenced the myth of the Hydra. Mm -hmm. And so started to play with those things together and you know, had, had some fun with it. You have a very creative mind. <laughs> Absolutely normal for an artist. Yeah. So picking disparate things yes. and kind of blending them, alchemizing them into something different. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you spoke of historical facts and of memories as sources of your inspiration. This leads me to the next question, which is, how do you see inspiration? What does inspiration mean to you? So where, where do you draw inspiration from? And I would also like to know if you've ever experienced creative block before, because creative block, inspiration, artistic creativity are major topics uh, that I addressed on my blog, among other things. So if you could tell us a few words about that, too. I think for me, sometimes a more creative block can come when I don't know how to realize an idea. So I get an idea, but I don't know how to construct it, to make it, to logistically realize it. And I can get lost in the details and not as inspired by 
the reality of making it. Like the process, right? Right. So if I understand you correctly, it's creative block happens to you when you kind of lose sight of the process and you you try to figure out, to envision how that would look like. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And, and I can get lost in that. And to recenter, then I need to simplify things, look at my materials again, and just start working. And I think it always comes down to an artist just to start working and let things sort themselves out through that process of the studio and not try to visualize things too much. Precisely. This is what I'm preaching on my blog, yeah. actually. The value, the importance, the magic of the process. It's not about the outcome. It's not about the one clear-cut solution or answer. It's about all those extraordinary possibilities that come up in the process. Exactly. Because that's, for me, that's the, the best part. Because you'll get to a point that you don't know where to take it. And it just, you have to provide a new answer and a new solution. It's all this creative problem solving. So you go with it. Yeah, always. And see where it leads. Yeah. It. yeah. That's the fun part. That's the fun part of it. You're so right. Joshua, we approach the end of this uh, super exciting exchange. I would like to ask you two more questions before we will put uh, an end to this talk. As we said before, you are not only an artist, but you also chair the Department of Fine Arts at the Tarrant County College in Fort Worth, Texas. And you run the gallery called the Carillon, what a gorgeous French name. Uh, which is attached to the Tarrant County College. And on top of that, yes, it's long, but I must mention it because it's, it's your work. You run the Artist Residence Program. Please tell us a few words about the subject you teach, the way you teach, and the work, the kind of work that you do with your students. Because among my listeners, there are also some German art teachers who would be super interested in learning from you and in your approach to, yeah, to teaching fine arts? I teach painting, I teach drawing, I teach printmaking. Surprisingly, I don't teach sculpture. My, my real educational background is in painting. But what really interests me in teaching and is important to me as a teacher is allowing students to develop their own voice and their own way of representing their ideas visually. How do you allow them to do that? I present them more problems, uh, more conditions that allow them to come up with their own creative answer. One of, one of my projects, you have to represent an emotion. So how do you visually represent an emotion to get to the core of it rather than just uh, like a greeting card version of an emotion? And so to get at the root of it, what it means to them and how do they express it where it's not so literal but you can draw that. And to see the variety of responses, and I allow them to use any medium, even if it's in painting class, like you can do anything. And I will get students who will make sculptures, who will make a book, who will do video, some do performance. Uh, and I'll still teach them, you know, the basics, the, you know, you need a foundation and here's how you make a painting. But to break away from that from time to time to allow them to explore their own sensibility and voice. This is so beautiful. And again, it comes down to you breaking boundaries, you breaking confines, and you enabling things to flow into each other. Exactly. It's all connected. And it's a way also to gain inspiration, to work with students and see them care so deeply about something. It's inspiring and can be motivating for me to get back into the studio. I can imagine that very well.
Joshua, I would like to close this talk with a question that seems to me very, very important in the current context around the world. What seems to you most important in life, not only as an artist, but also as a human being? Yeah, I could give the short, easy answer and say family, but I think it can be deeper than that. And as artists, as people, to realize that we are part of something so much larger, we are part of this art historical narrative, and we get to continue it forward. And we look back through history and we see how artists have dealt with tragic events all through history, of which really our current time nowhere compares to some of the great tragedies. Mm. And we see how they still made a record of that, how they recorded it, and still found inspiration to create. And I think for me, traveling, connecting with other artists from all around the world and realizing we all are together in this, we all see things in similar ways and you know view the same things as important as artists and they're always trying to improve and express ourselves better and to realize that we are part of a, a global community and not one that is so tribal. Oh yes, this is so, so beautiful and this is such a powerful message, especially once more in, in the current context around the world. The pandemic has uh, done a lot of harm to us. This social distancing has imposed so many limits on people. I have... Must, I must admit I've suffered a lot because of this, because um, so much of our human value got kind of lost in, in, in this discourse. And it's so beautiful to hear your message of bringing people together, of connectedness across cultures, around the globe. The benefits of the pandemic is that we're having this conversation. I mean, I think it encouraged us all to find new ways to connect. Yes, for that, I praise the pandemic. Indeed, that is an amazing thing, which, speaking for myself, I don't think it would have ever happened if this virus didn't push things in this direction. So uh, thank you for bringing a positive note into, into what I had uh, said before. I would like to close this uh, very, very beautiful conversation um, with you with a quote. I'm going to quote the French artist Edgar Degas because I think that it applies so, so well, fits so, so well with everything you do as an artist. Art is not what you see, but what you make others see. Oh, I do love that. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Joshua, for uh, accepting my invitation, for being here today and for inspiring uh, us so much with everything you said. And uh, I would uh, I would be thrilled to welcome you again in the future on the Pointless Artists Art Talks so on the Pointless Artists Podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Goodbye for now.